Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. If you have a Bible today, I encourage you to join me in the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians. I want to read verses 19 to 26. I was honored in the year 2017 to uh, publish a book by Elder Joe Holder that was entitled A Resurrection Gospel, and I want to borrow that title for my message this morning, for our gospel is truly a resurrection gospel. I want to read, beginning in the 19th verse of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul says, If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable, but now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ's at his coming. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. This year marks 42 years of trying to preach on Easter Sunday or Resurrection Day the glorious message of the risen Christ. But I have to tell you that although I've always believed it and rejoiced in it, it means more to me this year after witnessing the passing of my father in the flesh just a little over two months ago from this world. I've had grandparents that have passed away, but I've never lost anyone in my immediate family until just a couple of months ago again when my dad breathed his last and we had to bid farewell to him at the cemetery. And just to lose somebody near to my heart, somebody that's been there since my earliest memories, one of the first people I met in this world, is uh, staggering. It's stunning. And I'm sure many of you can identify, and if you can't today, no doubt there will be a time very soon in your life when you will lose somebody very near and dear to your heart. You know, the wonderful prospect of resurrection, reunion, that great rising day, as the hymn writer puts it, is glorious to me this morning. It's a fact that the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of the saints at the last day is indispensable to the integrity of the Christian faith. Take away the resurrection and you've taken away the good news from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now the word resurrection means rising again. It speaks of a rising again, not simply from falling down, and not simply from a defeat, but a rising again from death. 
Resurrection is not just to get up, brush yourself off, and try, try again, but it's rising again from the biggest enemy that you and I have in our lives. I don't know about you, but as I get older, and by the way, life comes at you fast. It's, it's passing more quickly than I ever thought that it would. But as I get older, the prospect of death that I once put off as something way out in the future is ever increasingly near in my own life. And may I say that our gospel is a message that deals with that ultimate reality. You see, the gospel message is not just an escape from reality. It deals head-on with the last enemy. That's what the Bible calls death in this 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. And the gospel message addresses the biggest problem that you and I face in our lives. Now, to the young people here today, perhaps this message seems very far off. But again, it wasn't just a little while ago that I was where you are. And life is brief and uncertain at best. You know, as I think about the eight years that I've pastored Bethel Church here on the coast, I think of all the people that we have interred in the cemetery that once sat on these pews that are no longer with us today. My beloved, it rejoices my heart to think of that great rising day, that happy reunion, to understand, of course, that they did not cease to exist when they died. Their soul and spirit immediately went into the presence of the Lord, and they're just as alive right now as they were when they were sitting on these pews. That's a wonderful thought. But you see, their bodies, which have perhaps gone back to the dust from whence they were originally taken, those bodies will be reconstituted. There will be a rising again and a reunion of the disembodied soul and spirit with the changed body that is fashioned like unto the glorious body of Jesus Christ. That's coming at the second coming of Jesus Christ when the cemeteries will break open. The morticians will have to take down their shingles because death will be swallowed up in victory. And I'm looking forward to that day. Now, the Apostle Paul faced a problem in the church at Corinth where there was a group of people that denied the bodily resurrection of the dead. So he presents in this chapter with impeccable logic a masterful case for the truth of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and the resurrection of the dead on the last day. I want you to notice in the first eight verses of this chapter, the apostle teaches that the resurrection is essential to the Christian gospel. It's not peripheral. It's not something that you can take or leave, but it is essential. Again, take away the resurrection, you've taken away Christianity. This is the only religion in the world, Christianity, that relies on the resurrection. If you could produce the bones or the remains of the Lord Jesus, we have no reason to be here today. The Muslims can't say the same. If you produced the remains of Muhammad, they could still go on with their religion. And the Hindus and the Buddhists and the Taoists and all world religions, even Judaism, could continue without Moses. But I'm telling you, Christianity stakes everything on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If Christ is not risen, then everything we believe and everything the church has stood for for 2,000 years 
is futile and meaningless and vain. And the apostle drives that point home in this chapter. But I want you to notice in the first eight verses how he defines the gospel that he preached in terms of the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you listen now as we read? Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached. And he says, this gospel which was preached unto you, you received it, and wherein you stand. You are believers. You've confessed belief in the good news. You've embraced it. By which also you are saved if you keep in memory what I've preached unto you. And my beloved, there is a gospel salvation to the people of God who remember that Jesus Christ is the Savior of sinners. There's a deliverance in that message from error, from ignorance, from hopelessness, from legalism, from all of the false ideas of men. There is deliverance from despair in the gospel. There's a salvation in it. I've experienced that of you. Paul says, by which also you are saved if you keep in memory. Now notice this is a conditional salvation. That's one way I know he's not talking about eternal salvation here because he says if. And I'm glad to know that there are no ifs, ands, or buts regarding eternal salvation. When Jesus said, it is finished, aren't you glad he didn't add the word if? It is finished and or but. No, my friends, Jesus said it is finished, period. But here's a salvation, a deliverance that depends on you keeping it in memory. You are saved by the gospel if you keep in memory what I've preached. And by the way, that's the main target of the enemy, the devil. He wants to blind your mind and confuse the issue and get you distracted so that you don't think about the essential Christian gospel message. So that you don't remember. You see, you can get so caught up in this world that you seldom think about the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done for you. Know how wonderful it is to keep in memory what has been preached. You say, well, Brother Mike, that's just the problem. I don't have a good memory. Then come to church and be reminded of it on a regular basis. That's how you keep it in memory, by being reminded of what Christ has done for you by hearing the good news. You see... There's more to this world than just what's happening on the world stage right now than current events. Ultimately speaking, death awaits each one of us. But the good news is that Jesus Christ died in our place. He was buried and he was resurrected. He rose again, not just from defeat, but from death itself. He broke the narrow limits of the tomb. And Samson-like, he carried the mighty bars of the gates of death away on his shoulders so that you and I have hope for the future. Now, Paul says you're saved by the gospel if you keep in memory what I've preached unto you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered unto you first of all, he says, 1 Corinthians 15, 3. And that expression, first of all, means of first importance. Now, I want to tell you that these facts are of first importance. These are first principles. These are the ABCs of Christianity. He says, I delivered unto you first of all, of first importance, that which I also received. And what the apostles gave us was received from the Lord Jesus by direct revelation. And what he gave them, they passed on to us. I delivered unto you that which also I received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. I want to ask you, how do you define the gospel? Well, 
Paul defines it in terms of the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think he means more here than just the historical fact that Jesus was crucified, placed in Joseph of Arimathea's new tomb, and rose again on the third day. Now, we know that that is a historical fact, but he means the significance of that. What did it mean? For instance, when he died on the cross, his death was different than the two thieves that died on either side of him. And from everyone else who's ever died by crucifixion, it had a different significance. It meant something more. It wasn't merely capital punishment for Jesus. It might have been for those thieves on either side of him, but it wasn't for Jesus. This, my friends, was an act of substitutionary atonement. He was dying in the place of those that were given to him by the Father before the foundation of the world. And when he was buried, that's evidence that he really died. He didn't just swoon at the cross. He didn't just faint and needed to be resuscitated by some smelling sauce. You know, skeptics have come up with all sorts of theories about the resurrection to try to argue away that the dead body of Jesus came back to life and was changed and glorified. And one of the theories is the swoon theory that Jesus uh, just fainted. But you know, when that soldier pierced his side with the spear, forthwith came there out blood and water. And the separation between the blood plasma and the blood is evidence that the Lord Jesus had been dead for at least 30 minutes. No, my friends, he was truly dead. And he was placed in Joseph of Arimathea's new tomb. His body was prepared for burial. And then it says that he was raised again the third day, according to the scriptures. Now, did you notice the repetition of that little expression, according to the scriptures? Obviously, that's a reference to the Old Testament scriptures. For the New Testament was not yet written and codified and placed in a book. The Apostle Paul is writing to the Corinthians on this occasion, but he says, according to the Old Testament scriptures, it predicted that Messiah would die, he would be buried, and he would rise again from the dead. And interestingly, Paul's first witness that he calls in this case for the resurrection of Christ is not the empty tomb itself, not your experience in seeing the tomb empty, because I've never seen that empty tomb. I've never been over there and seen the place where Jesus lay. So it's not the empty tomb itself, but it's the Holy Scriptures. He appeals to Old Testament Scripture and says, just as the Scriptures predicted, so Jesus died, so the Messiah was buried, and so he was resurrected the third day according to the Scriptures. And then notice he says he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. So Cephas is Peter, and of the other apostles, he calls them the twelve, because that was uh, the euphemism used for the apostles, even though Judas Iscariot, we know, is no longer in the number. He says he was seen of all of the apostles. Watch this. After that, he was seen of above 500 brethren at once. Now, there were 500 Jews on one occasion who were eyewitnesses to the risen Christ. We have some lawyers in our congregation today. I wonder how confident you would be in a case that you presented before a judge or a jury if you had 500 eyewitnesses whose testimony matched. 
that'd be a pretty conclusive case, wouldn't it? You, you wouldn't have much fear that you might be beaten if you had over 500 eyewitnesses. By the way, did you know there's more eyewitness testimony for the resurrection of Jesus than there is for the existence of Plato? There's a stronger case that can be made from eyewitness testimony that Jesus was resurrected than there is that Plato ever existed in the first place. You know, the skeptics among us would never think of denying that Plato actually lived, but they're not shy about objecting to the resurrection of Jesus, but there's greater proof. In fact, Acts chapter 1 says he showed himself alive by many infallible proofs. This is incontrovertible. These are evidences that cannot be contradicted. And then he says, of whom the greater part remain under this present. Paul said of those 500 people that saw him, most of them are still living. And I'll give you their addresses, he said, if you want to go talk to them. And he says, but some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen of me also as one born out of due time. Now, that's the case that he presents. It sounds pretty airtight to me. I'm sure you're aware, however, that it's precisely here against the doctrine of bodily resurrection that so many critics and anti-supernaturalists in our day cry foul. From the Hellenistic philosophers and Gnostics in the early centuries to the naturalistic philosophers, liberal theologians, and secular humanists of our day, the idea of resurrection is put in the category of fairy tale, fable, and fantasy. If there's one thing science has taught us, they say, it's that dead things stay dead. Resurrection is impossible. But you know, it's surprising to hear Peter says the very opposite on the day of Pentecost. Instead of saying resurrection's impossible, he said it's not possible that Jesus would be held or holden by death. Instead of saying it's not possible that he would rise again, he said it's not possible he would stay there. You know why that's true? Because death is the wages of what? Sin. And Jesus was not a sinner. He had no sin. Death has no control over someone who is holy, over someone who's not a sinner. Now, you say, well, he died in the first place. That's because our sins had been charged against him, had been imputed to him. He died in our stead for our sins, but I'll tell you, he had no sin of his own. And therefore, once he had paid the price on Calvary, there was no sin anymore. That's why he couldn't stay dead. It was not possible that death could hold him. In other words, resurrection had to occur. Now, you may be interested to know that the idea of bodily resurrection did not begin with Christianity. It goes way back into the most ancient of times. Think of Abraham, who lived about 2,000 years before Christ. When Abraham took Isaac up on Mount Moriah, Hebrews 11:19 tells us that he was going to obey God and slay his son. It's a very emotionally charged scene there, very dramatic. And as the knife is raised, Abraham is about to take Isaac's life until the angel stays his hand. And it says that Abraham, by faith, was obedient to God Watch this, accounting that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead. Did Abraham believe in resurrection? Evidently, 2,000 years before Christ. Job 
who was a contemporary of Abraham likely. He lived in the time of the patriarchs. And by the way, the book of Job is the oldest book, chronologically speaking, in the Bible. Now, it doesn't record the oldest events. Which book records the oldest events in history? Genesis, right? The creation story. But Job was composed prior to any other book in the Old Testament. And it is likely, and there's, there are arguments that can be made for this, that Job was a contemporary with Abraham. He lived about 2,000 years before Christ. And listen to what he says in Job 14. Now, this is talking about resurrection before the Christian era. Job 14, verse 14. Job asks the perennial question, if a man dies, shall he live again? See, they were contemplating that question 2,000 years before Christ. If a man die, shall he live again? And listen to the answer Job gives. All the days of my appointed time will I wait till my change come. Listen, thou shalt call and I will answer thee. Thou shalt have a desire to the work of thy hands. And based on verse 7 in this chapter, Job 14, it's pretty evident he's thinking in terms of resurrection, for he says, there is hope of a tree, if it be cut down, that it will sprout again, and that the tender branch thereof will not cease. Though the root thereof wax old in the earth, and the stock thereof die in the ground, yet through the scent of water it will bud and bring forth boughs like a plant. So he's drawing from nature this idea of new life. And he says, I'm going to wait until my change comes. When God calls and I answer him, the voice of the Lord, the creative fiat of God, God will have a desire to the work of his hands. That means that when he purchases something, he's not going to abandon it. He has a desire to the work of his hands. I'm telling you, if I were to purchase an automobile down at the dealership, I wouldn't leave it sitting on the lot. I'd go down and pick it up, wouldn't you? Because I'm going to claim my possessions. And the Lord, when he died on the cross, he purchased not just your souls and your spirits, he purchased the body as well. My beloved, he has a desire to the work of his hands. He's coming back to claim his purchased possession. If you turn forward to Job 19, you've probably heard this verse. Verse 25, I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth, and though after my skin worms destroy this body, after my body decomposes and goes back to the dust from whence it came, yet in my flesh shall I see God. Notice the emphasis on his physical body. In my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. Sounds like Job believed in resurrection, doesn't it? Abraham, Job, that's 2,000 years before Christ. Let's come forward 1,000 years, 1,000 years before Christ. David lived, and listen to what he says in Psalm 16. He says, my flesh, verse 9b, shall rest in hope. My body shall rest in hope. For thou wilt not leave my soul, that is my life, in hell, in the grave. Neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Interestingly, Peter quotes that very verse in his Pentecostal sermon, Acts chapter 2, and says that applies to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Listen to chapter 17 of the Psalms, verse 15. As for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. Did David believe that his flesh would rise and awake in the likeness of the Lord? 
Sure sounds like it. Now, it's not as clear in the Old Testament as it is in the New. You and I have the benefit with New Testament spectacles of reading back. You know, the New Testament is concealed in the Old, and the Old Testament is revealed in the New. That is, with New Testament light, you and I can see more clearly the doctrines that we hold so dear. For instance, the Trinity. See, with New Testament light, we can see it clearly when God said, let us make man in our own image. That's the first chapter of the Bible. That sounds plural, doesn't it? But that plurality is one God, you see. So the point that I make is that resurrection is taught even in the Old Testament. 2,000 years before Christ through Abraham and Job. 1,000 years before Christ through David. Now let's come forward a little bit. About 700 years before Christ, Isaiah chapter 26 Verse 19, thy dead men shall live. That's pretty surprising. Together with my dead body shall they arise. Awake and sing, ye that dwell in the dust. For thy dew is as the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. If that is not talking about resurrection, then language makes no sense. That's so clear it would take help to misunderstand it. And then, my friend, 600 years before Christ, we come to the book of Daniel, chapter 12, verse 2. And Daniel speaks of that last day when God's people would be delivered, even everyone whose name is written in the book. No doubt he's talking about the Lamb's book of life and the great doctrine of electing grace, where in the covenant God wrote the names of his loved ones in the Lamb's book of life, never to be erased. He says, at the end of time, they will be delivered, and many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. That sounds like Daniel taught resurrection 600 years before Christ. So when I say that the skeptics and infidels and unbelievers of our day deny the possibility, say science has proven that dead things stay dead, they don't come back to life, I want to tell you that in human history, this hope for the resurrection has prevailed in the human heart as far back as we can discover. And you say, well, it is just a pipe dream. It's an Alice in Wonderland wish. You know, a dream is a wish your heart makes when you're fast asleep. It's just the impossible dream. I'm telling you, my friends, Paul says that it actually happened. You see, the skeptics and the infidels say it's impossible Show me one person in the annals of human history who's come back from the dead. Well, we could show several who've done so. But I want to tell you, the Christian gospel says there is one who's come back from the dead never to die again, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what 1 Corinthians 15 tells us. By the way, Martha, the Orthodox Jew who was well-educated in the Old Testament law and prophets, you remember Lazarus died, and Martha says, John 11:24. I know my brother shall rise again at the last day. Does it sound like that this Orthodox Jewish woman named Martha believed in the final resurrection? Absolutely. She knew the Old Testament taught it. You say, well, Brother Mike, I just don't feel like it's necessary that the resurrection is essential to the Christian gospel. I mean, can't we have a Christianity without this supernatural emphasis? I mean, it, it offends the sophisticated intellects of our world. Why do we have to continue to promote this idea that the dead came back to life in the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, I want you to notice Paul deals in verses 12 to 19 of this chapter with the consequences of having a gospel without the resurrection. 
and they are dire. Paul employs a form of reasoning in this section, beginning in the 12th verse, in which he takes his opponent's argument that there is no resurrection, and he runs it all the way to its logical conclusion. Zeno popularized this form of logic. It's called reductio ad absurdum. He reduces his opponent's argument to absurdity. And that's really what Paul does in this passage. He says, now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, notice this is my gospel. This is the apostolic gospel. We preach Christ is alive. And if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you? Now here's a Christian church at Corinth. But you see, they were intellectuals. In fact, one of the problems of this church is intellectual pride. You look back at chapter 1 and they were claiming to be wise in this world. And Paul says the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God, and the wisdom of God is foolishness with men, but it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Well, in this passage, the Corinthians, some of them were too sophisticated to believe in this supernatural, miraculous resurrection, this idea, and they had denied it. Paul says, you better be careful before you throw that out, because it means you've destroyed the whole foundation of the superstructure that is the Christian church. If you throw out the resurrection, listen to his arguments. If Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? And listen to his argument now. For if there be no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. I want you to notice verses 13 and 16. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. What he's saying here is if there's no resurrection, you say it's impossible. Resurrection's impossible. A universal negative like that includes the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You can't have a universal negative with an exception to the rule. Let me say it like this. You've heard the syllogism, haven't you? All men are mortal. That's a universal statement. All men are mortal. Secondly, Socrates was a man. What's the conclusion? If all men are mortal and Socrates is a man then Socrates is what? Mortal. <laughs> That's the conclusion. You see, you have a universal statement, all men. And then you have a particular affirmative. If you have a universal negative, there is no resurrection. It can't happen. Then you can't have even one exception. You can't have a particular exception. Paul says if the dead rise not, if there is no resurrection, then Christ has not been raised. There is no exception to that. That claim, there is no resurrection, would necessarily include the resurrection of Jesus. Secondly, the next step, if the Lord Jesus Christ did not rise, he says in verses 14a and 15, then our preaching is vain. And in fact, as preachers, we are found, verse 15, false witnesses of God. We're guilty of perjuring ourselves, Paul says, because we've been proclaiming that God raised Jesus from the dead. We've been misrepresenting God. We're guilty of perjury. We're in jeopardy of blasphemy, and we have no gospel. So if the dead rise not, then you can't have a single exception, then Christ didn't rise. And if Christ didn't rise, then what we're doing here is the biggest waste of time that the world has ever seen. I'll tell you, there are a bunch of people in the world who say there's nothing more meaningless and futile than the proclamation of the gospel and the worship of the Christian church. There are people that say that. Well, if Jesus really didn't rise, then they're right. Our preaching is vain. 
And furthermore, if Christ is not risen, verse 14b, your faith is vain. Faith is meaningless. Now, do you ever pray? Why do you do that if there's no one who's there to listen to you? If he's still in a grave somewhere? Why pray if Jesus Christ did not rise? Prayer is an act of faith, isn't it? Your faith is vain. Prayer is an act of faith. Why do you trust God? Do you ever face a problem and you say, Lord, please help me? My friends, there's no reason to trust God or ever pray or to look outside of yourselves for any help if Jesus Christ is still in the grave. You see how everything depends on the empty tomb? And then he says, if Christ is not risen in verse 17, your sin problem remains unchanged. You are yet in your sins. And this brings up probably one of the most important points of this chapter, and it's that the resurrection of Jesus Christ underpins the biblical doctrine of salvation. There was no salvation. If death got the victory over him, the wages of sin is death. So if Jesus is still dead, how do we know that sin has been paid for? The wages of sin have been paid. That's what he means. If Christ is not risen, you are yet in your sins. My beloved, every sermon that you've ever heard that says Jesus paid it all, all the debt that you owed, sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow, is just so much fluff if Jesus Christ is not risen. It is the resurrection that certifies that what he did on the cross was real. The resurrection is proof positive that the people that Jesus came to save were saved. Romans 4.25 puts it like this, He was delivered because of our offenses, and He was raised again because of our justification. The fact that Jesus Christ came out of the grave is proof positive that God has declared all that Jesus represented to be free and clear, to be everything that the law requires them to be. Jesus' resurrection is the certification, heaven's stamp of approval on the work that He did on the cross. It's proof that he put away our sins. I'll tell you another thing that the resurrection does regarding the Bible doctrine of salvation. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the ultimate cause of what the Holy Spirit does in the hearts of a dead sinner when he is resurrected in spiritual life. Regeneration. Not only does resurrection directly touch justification, but the resurrection of Jesus Christ is seen as the prototype. Even more than that, it is the cause for the work of the Holy Spirit in vitally regenerating a people. Did you know that the New Testament uses three metaphors to talk about what the Holy Spirit does in the heart in the new birth? It calls it a creation, it calls it a birth, and it calls it a resurrection, a passing from death to life. Listen to 1 John 3.14. We know that we have passed from death unto life. Now what is passing from death to life? Resurrection. We know we've passed from death to life because we love the brethren. That's an evidence that you've been born again. Or listen to John 5, 24 and 25. He that heareth my words, heareth, present perfect tense, and believeth on him that sent me. You show me somebody that hears and believes, says John, I'll show you somebody who has everlasting life. Watch this. He that heareth my words and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. That's resurrection. For the hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and they that hear shall live. Is the new birth described as a resurrection? 
Did you know what happened when you were born again? There was a resurrection that occurred in your inner man. That which previously did not have any life awoke and was raised with Christ. Colossians 3.1, if you then be risen with Christ, he's talking to people who've been born again, seek those things that are above where Christ sitteth at the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things of this earth, for you are dead, that is dead to sin, and your life, you're dead and alive at the same time, your life is hid with Christ in God. I want to say, my friends, that the resurrection underpins the Bible doctrine of salvation, both in terms of the justifying grace of God at the cross and the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of God's children. Romans 8.11 says, If Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. He says, And if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead be in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit which dwelleth in you. Do you see the connection between the resurrection of Christ, the resurrection of the inner man, and the final resurrection of the saints in that one verse? It is a remarkable thing. The Bible doctrine of the resurrection underpins the whole doctrine of salvation. So you throw out the resurrection of Jesus. My friends, we can forget about talking about the fact that Jesus saved sinners. There is no salvation if the tomb is occupied. If Christ be not risen, you're yet in your sins. I want to tell you something else the resurrection underpins. The resurrection undergirds the Bible doctrine of the end times. Notice verses 18 and following in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, If Christ be not raised or yet in your sins, then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. Do you know what it means if Jesus is still in the grave? It means that you won't ever see your loved ones again. Now I know that this is not a compelling argument for the skeptical thinker out here in the world. In fact, one of their complaints and criticisms of the Christian is that they use religion as a bromide or as an opiate, you know, to kind of escape from reality and to numb the pain of life because they can't cope with life any other way. That's far from the truth, my beloved. Our Christian faith is not just a, an escape, you know, say, well, I think I'll open the cabinet and get me a drink or I think I'll open the medicine chest and get a pill to, to numb the pain of life and I think I'll go to church to numb the pain of life. No, that's what Karl Marx taught. Marx said that religion is the opiate of the people, that people need it because they're too weak. They're not strong enough and resilient enough to deal with life on their own. The poor people, the ignorant, the people that are weak, they need religion, but those of us who know better don't. That's what Marx said. So I know that's a complaint, but still, I do believe there is a benefit of personal pastoral peace and joy in our hearts and lives by knowing the truth and believing the truth. And I want to ask you, how do you deal with the loss of loved ones if you don't believe in the resurrection? If Christ is not raised, then those who are fallen asleep are perished. That word means they will never come back again. There is no hope that you will ever be reunited with loved ones if Christ is not raised. And that's when he says, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. Do you know what that means? Most miserable means the most to be pitied. Now, in my view, the world should look at the Christian and envy him. Christian people are the most to be envied. 
because they have peace, they have joy, they have stability, they have strength, they have reason and purpose and significance to keep going forward. But Paul says if Christ is still in the grave, then there is no one who is more foolish, whose activity is more useless. There's nothing more futile and no people who are the more to be pitied than believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. If the resurrection is not true, believers deserve more sympathy from this world than any other group of people that are around us. Let me say it like this. Sometimes people get mad when I preach that I believe the Bible's the word of God, that Jesus is the son of God, and that he actually literally physically came forth out of the grave in resurrection life, and the unbeliever gets mad at it. If you doubt that the skeptical world is mad at God and mad at those who believe in God, then just read a little bit on the internet. I mean, there's an animosity toward Christianity in this world, isn't there? And what I want to tell people that get mad at us is, if we're wrong, don't get mad at me, pity me. I mean, if this isn't true, then who is more deluded than Christians if this isn't true? We're the most duped and deluded people that have ever lived. We're the most to be pitied. We're of all men. If, if this life is all that there is, and we've been saying that something better is coming, then my friends, there is nobody who deserves to be treated with greater sympathy than those who belong to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, if Christ is not risen, then we deserve to be pitied. But he says, but now is Christ risen from the dead. I love the change of tone beginning in the 20th verse and become the first fruits of them that slept. Now, I want you to notice that word first fruits. It's a Jewish term. You know, don't you, when the Jews who were an agricultural people planted their crop, the first pickings were to be devoted to God. And if they would give the first fruits as an offering to God, that is the first tomato that comes on the vine, you say, ooh, I want to taste that. That's mine. God says, no, it's, that's mine. You sacrifice and give the first fruits the best to me. And if you'll give the first fruits to me, that will guarantee the rest of the harvest. You'll have a bumper crop. The first fruits, when it was accepted, guaranteed the rest of the harvest. It says Jesus Christ is the first fruits of them that slept. Somebody might say, Brother Mike, just a minute. Jesus was not the first one to ever be resurrected in history. You're right. Elijah raised the widow's son in the Old Testament. Elisha raised the great woman's son, the great woman of Shunem, in 2 Kings chapter 4. Jairus' daughter was raised by Jesus. Uh, the widow's son at Nain was raised back to life in Luke chapter 7. Lazarus was raised in John 11. Jesus was not the first one to ever be resurrected. But you see, there's one point of difference. Those people were raised back to physical life and they died again. Jesus, though, was raised back to life and there was something about his resurrection that was different than theirs. For he will never die again. He was glorified glorified. You say then, Brother Mike, if Jesus' resurrection was different than these others, he didn't die again. He will never die again. And our resurrection is to be patterned after his. He's the first fruits. And every man, he goes on to say in his own order, first Christ the first fruits, then afterwards they that are Christ that is coming. Because he lives, we shall live also. Never to die again. You might ask, what is the nature of the resurrected body? 
And I want you to notice that in verses 35 to 49, Paul deals with that question. He says, some will say, how are the dead raised up and with what body do they come? His point is that there is such variety and diversity in nature. If you look at all the different flowers, plants, all the different kinds of birds, the flesh of fish, the flesh of men, if you look at the different physical forms, the diversity in nature, and God gives each one a body as it has pleased him. And even in the starry heavens, there are celestial bodies. There's a sun and a moon and there's Saturn and Venus and Pluto and Jupiter and so forth. And he says there are terrestrial bodies. And the glory of the celestial is one. You could just stand awestruck at a picture of the starry heavens. You could be as awestruck at the sight of a beautiful flower, an Easter lily, you know. Each one has its own glory. He says, so also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. So the, the body that's sown is a body that's decaying, breaking down. But I'll tell you, it will be raised incorruptible. It's sown in weakness. It'll be raised in power. In other words, my friends, it will be the same body. There's continuity. It'll be really me. But there's discontinuity in this sense. It'll be glorified. It'll be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we shall be changed. Not exchanged, changed. For this mortal must put on immortality, not subject to death anymore. This corruptible must put on incorruption. My body will never age, will never grow old. And then he says, when all of this has happened and the final resurrection occurs, then shall be brought to pass a saying that is written, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? In other words, it's sort of a mocking. Death, you're not in charge anymore. You don't rule the day. But thanks be to God who's given us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. My beloved, we have a triumphant message in the church. Let's never be intimidated by the skeptics and infidels to stop proclaiming it in pity and love. Preach it from the housetops. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Because Jesus lives, my friends, we will live also. And because he lives, you and I can face today with strength and tomorrow with bright hope. We can face tomorrow. In the current climate of skepticism and unbelief in our world, may we continue to proclaim with clarity and conviction this resurrection gospel. For it's the only message that shines the heavenly sunbeams of hope into the darkness and gloom and despair of this world.
we shall be.